This podcast is about all things related to a disparate community of Americans without a name. We are the AM, A-M-M. A for Arab, M for Muslim, and another M for Middle Eastern. By heritage and American by choice or circumstance. But more importantly, we are separated and alienated from each other. It's time to get in front of the racist PR, clean out the cobwebs, and get to the business of defining ourselves. We are here to elevate and voices. You ready to hear some tough truths? I am Banav Shemadainajad. This is Ramesh Deen. I'm Roy Casagranda, and this is The Defining Moment. Welcome to this episode of The Defining Moment. And today we have a really special guest, Armin Salik. Armin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? This is a show about identities, and uh, could you just list as many identities as you can think of and uh, beyond whatever else you want to say about yourself to get us uh, acquainted and situated? Sure. Uh, I think the first part I want to talk about is my connection to the AM community. I am Middle Eastern. I am an Iranian-American. I came from Iran to the United States at the age of five. And ever since, I've lived in Texas. And I've been proud to be Iranian, Persian, whatever we call it on that day. And I am a 29-year-old male teacher. I think I predominantly find myself calling myself a teacher over a lawyer, just because that's what I'm most passionate about these days. Uh, This year for Austin ISD, they named a high school teacher of the year. And very fortunately, I was named as the high school teacher of the year. Yes. Um, yeah. How many years have you been a teacher? It is now four years of full-time teaching, but I've always been involved in education. Like at what, in what capacity? So my journey as a full-time teacher began in law school through a program called Street Law, where I would go to high schools in Houston, Texas, and I would teach those high school students about their rights and responsibilities, primarily in the area of criminal law. Before that, I mentored and tutored in different spaces in Houston, Austin, and even while I was in high school myself. Why teaching? I think that partly connects to my background. I think I've been very fortunate, but I've been around a lot of people that have overcome obstacles, whether that be immigration, um, refugees overcoming struggles abroad. So I've always felt like I've been very privileged in so many ways. I've always had the upper hand. I've been given so many opportunities to succeed that have given me the chance to be an attorney, to be a teacher. And it's almost like I feel like if I help somebody else reach that level, I'm finally earning it. I feel like I reached this point because of the work that my parents put in, that my brother put in, that my teachers put in. You know, now it's my turn to pay forward. All right. So we uh, we had this conversation and we were there's so many ways to take our conversation. Um, so many paths that we can go down. Um, but, you know, I. Uh, Maybe we can do as many as possible in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Um, I, I'm really curious about your students. And you, you mentioned refugees, for instance, refugee kids. What has your experience been like with them um, in Austin? And why did you get the award? Like, what's happening here, right? <laughs> so I'll talk about the first piece uh, because it kind of connects to why we reached the level as a group that we earned the High School Teacher of the Year Award. So everybody sitting at home who has never taught at the high school level 
whatever you think happens to high school students and the traumas that they experience, just know that it's usually worse. I came into working in the high school setting thinking, yeah, students have it worse than me. Uh, they have faced obstacles that I wouldn't have ever imagined. It is so much worse than I ever expected. Coming into working at Eastside Memorial first and Aikens High School, I think people would be surprised by how many of our students face homelessness, how many of our students face traumas, whether it be sexual or physical, emotional, psychological. It is shocking. Um, and I think I've my entire journey, I've been surrounded by people who have faced trauma. You know, when I was working in the legal setting, I was predominantly an immigration attorney. And a lot of my work was related to refugees and migrants coming from places where they face persecution. So I heard the stories of female genital mutilation. I heard the stories of attacks on the LGBTQ population from these countries abroad. And then I came into the high school setting. And, you know, now we're talking about stories of homelessness, sexual trauma, being kicked out of your home at the age of 14, 15, 16. And these students face incredible challenges. And the fact that some of these 14, 15, 16 year olds face all of that sometimes help support their families and then still come to school and complete all the coursework is incredible. Um, we don't give enough credit to those students that are working full-time jobs while being full-time students. What they accomplish is just incredible and any high school teacher can tell you that. So that kind of ties to how we were recognized for being the high school teacher of the year. So when I moved over from law to education, I want to transition into a longer term impact on people's lives. You know, when you're an attorney, they have these individual problems they bring to you and you are the best counselor. You are the best way that they can get access to the United States as a migrant. You are their best defense against evictions, against uh, civil rights abuses, employment abuses, whatever it might be. But then once that problem is over and you've kind of help fix it or put a band-aid on it, usually you're going back into a cycle of poverty that leads to more traumas or more issues related to the law. You know, I imagine this world where I became a teacher and then I would just be able to solve all those problems on the front end. Hey, if we get a quality education, we can solve the issues that lead to eviction. We can get you out of poverty. We can solve all of those things. But then when I became a teacher, all of a sudden, all the students that I was teaching needed legal help. So their families were getting evicted. Their families were struggling with deportation. Their families were struggling with sexual traumas. So all the things that I was learning to do from my um, professors in law school, that's the support that they needed. So I found out about this position at Aikens High School, and it was for a full-time attorney to teach law all day long. And it was a great, great idea. We had a courtroom on campus, which is just stunning. I was blown away when I first saw it. And we had a curriculum that was primarily focused on criminal law. But what we added with the help of my seniors, the legal eagles, uh, we started a legal aid clinic. So we started the first high school legal aid clinic in the country. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's an amazing program for students to really get their, their hands wet and try out the practice of law, right? Because the practice of law is more than watching a movie on TV and you know, watching the criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors go at it. A lot of it is honestly form filling, writing legal arguments. And, you know, I, I tell everybody that's like, can high school students handle that? And the first piece is we're not taking on the next OJ case. We're not going to take on the next merger of Pepsi and Coca-Cola. We, we are very mindful of the types of cases that we handle, but still uh, the students are empowered and they realize, 
you know, I can be there. You know, our, our students have argued in front of a Texas Supreme Court justice. They win trials and mock trial, and they've actually helped out with immigration cases and wills and all kinds of uh, different facets of the law. And another thing I'd like to mention is that these students are helping out with things that they deal with on a daily basis in their own lives. You know, we have migrants helping out with immigration applications. Children that have faced family law issues are helping out with divorces and child custody. People that have faced uh, deportation are helping out. People that have faced evictions are helping out. So, yes, these students can handle it because they've had to handle it in the past. And it's just an amazing opportunity to get them a leg up. Sure. So what are the ways in which, like, while we were talking uh, earlier on a previous conversation, you detailed these different ways in which uh, your identity or the ways in which you were clocked showed up differently as an immigration attorney when you were encountering different clients of different backgrounds. And I imagine it also shows up uh, in this classroom setting. So how has that uh, informed your work and your practice? Sure. I think one piece that always surprised me when I became an immigration attorney that I had never thought about was my interaction with Iraqi clients. And part of that is because, you know, I'm dealing with clients that were raised as a part of a generation that grew up during a war between Iran and Iraq. So their perception of the relationship between those two countries is very different than mine. You know, I, I was born after the Iran-Iraq war ended. And, you know, I was never raised or told to dislike Iraqis or anybody else in the Middle East. I was always told to understand that people are different than the policies of their country. But when I get an Iraqi client or an Iraqi student, typically there's a little bit of hesitation on their end. They're checking the temperature. They're checking to see, you know, what does this Iranian male think of me? You know, I've, I've worked with refugees that have come from Iraq and, you know, they were a little bit hesitant. They liked that, you know, maybe we were neighbors. There was an opportunity for a little bit of kinship, but they also thought, what does this guy actually think of me? You know, what, what has history dictated to him about our relationship and how he should perceive me? And I think overcoming that has always been kind of a part of the joy of working with people from Iraq. What were the specific things going on in these interactions that sort of said that to you, that said that there is a hesitation here, there's something going on? You can just tell from the face. There's When I've worked with clients from Central America, Mexico, um, Western or Eastern Europe, there was just a confidence there, all right? This is the legal guy. He can help me out. When I've worked with Iraqi clients, it was almost like, okay, he might know what he's talking about, but will his perceptions of me get in the way of his advocacy? So it was just seeing that face, seeing that deliberation in their mind that, okay, is this guy actually on my team? So how do you turn it around? I, I think... Honestly, a lot of it is body language, you know, showing them that, you know, that that fact that they're from this country that was once at war in a war that I never saw personally is not going to change my perception of you. And I mean, obviously, I've had family that grew up during the Iran-Iraq war, but there was no point in my life where I was taught, okay, those guys are the enemy. You know, the Iraqi people are the enemy of the Iranians. Like that was never part of my experience growing up. And I think just, you know, showing them, putting in the work and putting on a smile and letting them know, yeah, we're on the same team. We're good. Uh, we'll get you taken care of. I'm going to help out whatever way I can. We're, we're neighbors. We're not adversaries. Um, I like how you, the, how you brought that up when you said, you know, nobody ever taught me that, that 
Iraqi, the Iraqi people were my enemy. You know, I, I actually lived through the Iran-Iraq war. I was 10 years old when it started. And I was in the city where it first started. And I spent the first month in that city under bombs and siege and all sorts of stuff. And and never once, it's this is actually, you've made me notice this. I mean, I think I've partially noticed it, but you at this moment really made me notice that I don't think I ever heard from a single Iranian, whether they from, they were from Abadan, which is the city that I'm from, um, anything negative about the Iranian people, uh, sorry, the Iraqi people um, or Iraq, any of that. Um, Saddam was a whole other story. Um, and the, the, the Islamic Republic had all sorts of propaganda. Um, in fact, although I don't remember the propaganda being against the Iraqi people either, interestingly enough. Um, so that just brings to my mind how somehow deep inside we all know it's not the people, <laughs> right? Even even when the bombs are falling. Um, th and that's really interesting to me. And the second thing is I remember uh, the first year when we came to Tehran, we left and came to Tehran, and my mom and dad were still in Abadan. My mom was a frontline nurse, and my dad was a manager in the Iranian National Oil Company, the, the refinery, which at that point was still the biggest refinery in the world. And so they were there. They had to stay there. And we were living, my brother and I, who was six years younger than me, we were staying with my aunt, who heroically was taking care of us in this three small three-bedroom apartment. And she had her own kids there, too. It was, it was something. And I remember one time... She had picked up knitting. She was not. She she was the matron of the biggest hospital in Tehran. Like this was a, uh, she she is a dragon. Like she is. You don't mess with this woman. And so she's sitting there knitting because we're all so nervous and going nuts, right? And which reminds me of this time, actually. Um, so she's sitting there knitting and they're showing, we're watching TV, it was news time, and we're all sort of just sitting in that space in front of the TV, all hanging out. It was after dinner. And she bursts into tears when they show Iraqi prisoners being handcuffed and taken away. And I don't remember who asked her, uh, why the hell are you crying? These are Iraqis, it's not Iranians. And she just very she's really mad she's like what the heck is the difference there is no difference and that was a really important moment for me and I was a kid I was like 10 years old I was like wow there really is no difference is there <laughs> there really wasn't she she framed it the same way that I've always been taught to frame it that it was just a disaster that was inflicted on two people at the same time uh, so that's that's always what, what I was raised to think is that you know this the war wasn't inflicted by one country or another, because there was responsibility on both ends, as history has dictated, but it was never to understand it as one side's responsibility or the creation of, like, ad permanent adversaries. But also, I'm asked constantly, you know, it's not just the Iraqi people that come to me a little bit nervous when they're my clients. It's also Americans, you know, sometimes when they see me interacting with Iraqis, they think, do you see them as your enemy? Uh, are you? Would you be comfortable hanging out with an Iraqi? What would your parents think if you dated one? 
And I'm always like, no, my, my parents, <laughs> my parents aren't worried about that. They're not worried about keeping me away from the Iraqi people. They don't hate the Iraqi people. Um, it, it's, we're all kind of learning to, or not me, but it's two nations that are learning to recover from a traumatic past. Which brings me to another memory. Um, it triggered another memory. Um, we were, it's, it's about Iraq. This show is about Iraq. I remember when a desert, which one was first, Shield or Storm? 1991. They were both at the same time because Shield was the deployment of U.S. forces and then Storm is the massacre. Okay, so the, yeah, that first Iraq war, U.S.-Iraq war. Um, I remember I was in a boyfriend's house. I was staying with their, his, his family. We were visiting them for a week or so. And I remember that shock and awe. Y'all don't know what we're talking about, but that shock and awe, there was a, it was a mass bombing overnight and it lit up the whole city. You're, and you're confusing the two wars. So shock I? and awe was 2003. Oh, okay. But in the first war, they did do they a did, I remember that. month long bombing. I remember event, the first. But they didn't call it shock and awe. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Shock and awe they is, learned is the to definition of terror, right? Which is what terrorists do. Yeah, but but you know when we name it, we're supposed to be proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. At any rate, um, I remember. Thanks for the correction, by the way. So I remember that first night um, when the war started, or it was night there. It was day our time in Texas. Uh, it was maybe around one or two in the afternoon. And it was nighttime in Iraq, and um, just watching this. And I just met this family. We weren't, you know, I hadn't, I didn't, and and they were Northeast Texan. They were as white as can be. Um, um, you know, no real knowledge of the Middle East. Uh, just, you know, and I started crying. Um, and I immediately, in fact, not in front of them, but I immediately came and sat in another room and I was just sobbing and his, the man I was dating, his mom, uh, who turned out to be a wonderful human being came and sat next to me. She's like, um, why are you crying? You should be happy. Or maybe she didn't use this word. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, I thought that you, she didn't use the word happy, but she was like, I wasn't expecting you to be upset about this type, you know, like I thought, you know, they, they, they bombed y'all to you know, whatever uh, you would be. I was like, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So this goes back to when you said the Americans, I totally Sometimes it takes experiencing something like that to understand the humanity of it. And I think my parents and brother can discuss and share the pain of the people that go through that far more than I can. Right? My, my learning is based on their teaching and their experiences. So, yeah, you, you've been there, you've experienced it, you've seen it firsthand. So it adds to the humanity of your understanding of it. So most people, luckily, don't have that. Yeah, luckily is right. Yeah. So when we talked, uh, when I first met you, which was, what, two weeks ago? <laughs> I don't even remember. Yeah. One of the things that came up for you in our conversation was how you uh, didn't quite fit into categories. So, for, right, like Iranians saw you as American, Americans saw you as Iranian. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, well, yes, uh, Iranians 
oftentimes see me as American and highly Americanized, Westernized, and it's it's absolutely true. I have no doubts or qualms about that. Uh, it kind of ties into the same thing that we were talking about because my experience with Iran is very different than my parents or my brother's experience. You know, they were the ones that faced all those challenges. They were the ones that, you know, grew up in Iran. My experience with Iran is going and getting Lavoshak, uh, getting, going to Darband and experiencing, you know, the joy and purely like the fun touristy parts of it. So literacy moment Darband is, um, it's, it's a, a little village inside, now inside of Tehran and it's very mountainous. So people go for mountain climbing, um, it's it's it is one of the joys of living in Tehran. Oh yeah, you, YouTube that for sure. And Iran also has you know beautiful mountainous areas in the north, and that's my experience of Iran. Right, I don't have any memories from before the age of five when I moved over here. So my two experiences were going and playing paintball with my cousin. So it my identity as Westernized is pretty accurate because you can capture my experience in Iran with a a food video on YouTube, but. I, I would change the idea of me being seen as Iranian by Americans because realistically, I'm seen as Mexican first, Indi- <laughs> Indian second, Pakistani third, and I, I mean, I don't even know. There's about four more that would come before Iran. And I, <laughs> I, t- I take pride in all those things. When people think I'm Mexican, I feel like I have to wear the band. You should be the face of I am, dude. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. We'll, we'll add uh, Mexican to the end. An extra M. Hey, listen. There's a there's a huge Latinx uh, Muslim convert population. Uh, One of our auto mechanics is a Muslim Puerto Rican. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think I would even be Salvadorian before I'm Iranian in the United States, just because that that's not one of the flavors that's on the list. You know, the common flavors are they say you're either Mexican, Chinese. Indian Chinese? No, not for me, but I'm I'm just saying like, oh, like the common the categories, the categories <laughs> you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, it those are the easy categories that everybody kind of has to fit into when you first meet them or categorize them, but yeah, I, I take pride in all of them, you know. Regardless, I feel like I represent a migrant population. I represent yes, a yes, minority yes, population, so you have to uh do things the right way because I think part of that minority experience is feeling like you represent more than yourself and you are going to be judged as a representative of a bigger population, whether that be undocumented migrants, documented migrants, um, first generation, second generation. It's it's a bigger picture, right? Yeah, we're never individuals. We're never treated as individuals. We're always the collective. <laughs> In this case, not even the AM collective. Like, it's just, yeah, the my, the immigrant collective. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm happy with whatever label they give me, uh, as long as I represent it well. <laughs> So Armin John, how would you, um, if you were to define what it means to be Iranian American, how would you, I mean, I know I'm not asking you to talk on behalf of Iranian Americans at large, but I guess, um, how do you see the community? How do you feel you fit into it? Oh man, I yeah. I know, I know. This is like the the question. It, it's yeah, a, I know. It's a big question. I'm very unqualified to represent the feelings of your own. Hey, you are the most qualified to talk about your own uh, lived experience. So for me, it's it's a very proud community. It's a very knowledgeable, intelligent community. Sometimes it's a very status oriented community. 
uh, sometimes um, we are, we're proud people. And I think there's a lot to be proud of. And I, I think I'll always remember that. And I, I think there's a lot to learn from the history of Iran and from people that have experienced everything that Iran has gone through. You know, by the time my parents were my age, they had seen a revolution and a war. And, you know, they had a kid, you know, that makes me think, you know, what am I doing on West 6th or East 6th on a Saturday night when my parents were <laughs> experiencing all of those things, you know, there's a beautiful culture there that I think people really enjoy. And I think there's, I think our culture is marked by a desire to get a little bit of approval. Um, I think when you, whenever you watch a YouTube video of a food tour in the Middle East, you will always notice one thing. They are so incredibly nice to the people that visit. And there's a reason for that. There's a need to get approval. I think we... <laughs> Never thought of that. <laughs> we spend so much time and it, we, we call it that it's a friendly culture, but it's also the fact that, you know, there's so much negative PR, like you said, that, you know, when people visit Pakistan or people visit Afghanistan or people visit Iran, people are so excited to have the opportunity to say, all right, forget what's on CNN or Fox News. You know, take a look at this amazing food. Take a look at these friendly people. Look at these smiling faces. This is this is the real Iran, right? And I think that that carries over into our experience in the United States as well. I see the way that Iranians interact with other cultures, and it's always such a positive experience. Part of that is because I, I do think we're we're great, we're lovely, we're wonderful people. But I also think that we always feel like there is a lot of false negative attention that our cultures get that you know now we're the representatives now we we carry the flag to show what iran iraq the middle east in general pakistan is actually like these are actually friendly people who smile and have amazing food and amazing culture and are warm and compassionate and i th i think that's something that flows throughout the middle east what 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 about you makes you iranian american other than you know like um, Other than genetics, <laughs> I'm very wary of using that word. But yeah, the, other than the way you look and the history and and memories, and or is there anything else? There, I mean, it's it's all about the teachings of my parents. I think what makes me Iranian is what I have learned through my parents and family, and. It's it goes back to everything we've talked about in terms of experiencing wars, experiencing revolutions. It's my parents have taught me to be very understanding of other people, be very slow to antagonize others, be willing to learn from others because they've seen you know kind of situations where they've been forced into. I don't I don't even know how to explain it. They've always just taught me that you know you don't make an enemy where enemies don't need to be. Um, you always look for the best in people. And I think that comes from their background as Iranians. And I think those teachings have come from their experiences in Iran, um, having to deal with wars, having to deal with you know, factions developing in Iran. And I think they've shared that with me. And I think that's what uh, makes me Iranian, that I'm willing to listen. I want to hear both sides. I want to find out more. And I don't want to create an enemy where it's not necessary. All right, y'all, until the next episode, um, stay safe, stay inside, be well, and uh, don't go insane. <laughs> this is Roy Kasagranda, Masalam. 
This has been Ramesh Nadim. Goodbye. And this is Armin Salik. Thank y'all for having me. I'll be listening in. Hoya ghabitak talat